Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. Um, back after a one-week hiatus, because Everald here had a bit of a croaky throat last week uh, down in Melbourne. But um, we, we desert our post for one week, and then Australia learns that Scott Morrison apparently appointed himself Supreme Leader. So uh, we got a lot to talk well, about today, haven't we? James, as soon as we take a week off, corruption starts happening. We can't afford ever to take a week off. You know, that's the way it is. Well, just looking at that, James, I haven't ever come across anything quite so uh, extraordinary in this whole thing. And there are enormous ramifications of how, uh, of, of, of how the whole thing uh, happened and, uh, and what was hoped to be achieved by it. And the way in, bad way in which Morrison and the Governor-General are now handling it now, you look, you're a young lawyer, I'm not, I'm just a politician backer. But as a young lawman, you, you could write this about, write your thesis on this and get your doctorate on this one. Now, what, what, what's your thoughts about it? Well, um, I think you raise a good point there in that you absolutely can write a doctoral thesis on this. And it's, um, <laughs> it's a, a bit too high even above my pay grade. Because obviously, um, for people who don't know, our constitution is pretty... I wouldn't say it's fast and loose, but in the Westminster political system, that which we inherited from the UK, there are a lot of things that are based on convention rather than written law. Um, now, our constitution, for example, as you've said many times, Everald, doesn't mention the uh, doesn't mention the, the office of the prime minister. Yeah, um, it's an office created by convention. Now, it's a convention, for example, that when a minister is appointed, the public knows. Because in the Westminster system, we have this thing called representative and responsible government. And the High Court has said, because of sections 7 and 24 of the Constitution, which mean that, which say that the House and the Senate are to be elected by the people, our Constitution sort of, through it, has it running an undercurrent of representative and responsible government. Now, what responsible government is, is the idea that the ministers, i.e. the executive, are responsible to the legislature i.e. the parliament, and through the parliament, the people who elect the legislature and the ministers and the government. Now, if anyone's seen Question Time here, they'll know that in Question Time, um, you don't get up and say, I have a question for Josh Frydenberg. Someone would have got up and said, rather, I have a question for the treasurer. And then Josh Frydenberg gets up to answer the call. Because in the Westminster system, again, it's the executive, i.e. the ministers, who are accountable to the questions. It's not Josh Frydenberg who answers the question as Josh Frydenberg. He answers the questions as the treasurer. Yeah. And so when Morrison goes around and secretly appoints him as the, the, the secret, not shadow minister, because that's the opposition, the secret minister for all these portfolios, um, it breaks these conventions of responsible government. Because when someone got up, say, say a parliamentarian gets up and asks a question of the minister for resources, because as we all know now, Morrison used his power as the secret resources minister to cancel a gas project. So if someone were to get up and ask the minister for resources why that gas project was cancelled, and Keith Pitt, who was the public minister for resources, answers the call, even though it was secret minister for resources Morrison who actually made the decision, the person who made the decision wouldn't be being held accountable. We know also, for example, that Morrison had $828 million worth of grants powers through the industry portfolio. This was when Christian Porter was the Minister for Industry. 
So same deal. If a Labor parliamentarian wanted to get up and ask a question of the Minister for Industry about one of the $828 million worth of grants that were given out from the portfolio, because they were secretly given out by Morrison, given out under the cover of the Ministry for Industry, um, if the Minister for Industry was asked about it, Porter got up and answered the question when it was really Morrison making the decisions. We don't have the decision makers being made publicly responsible for their decisions, which is like a foundational bedrock on which our democratic Westminster system rests. Well, and there are two things here. Why did, why did Morrison do it and why did the Governor-General approve it? And when we come to that, I, I find the Governor-General massively guilty in, in, in all this. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, why did Morrison uh, do it, other than the fact that he loved also his prime ministership to focus power on himself? Uh, why on earth would he do this? Because he, he was basically saying, I don't trust these ministers to handle something in a crisis. Now, if that's the case, why the hell did he appoint him? Why did Morrison do it? Tell me that. Well, I mean, look, I just spent, you know, four minutes boring our listeners about the intricacies of the Constitution, so maybe I'll let you have the first stab in the cherry here, Everald. What do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, I, uh, I, I just find it, uh, it, it baffling. Uh, you know, I, I, I take the point you're making, but I just find it it's baffling that uh, that he would he would contemplate it uh, and. Uh, if, if I had been the prime minister, and, and I'm never going to be, but I and I wanted to do, this, I would have called each one and said, "Look, we're in a crisis situation. There may be situations where an urgent decision has to be made about something because of COVID nineteen or something." And so I'm appointing with them in case the whole of government decisions got to be made in a hell of a hurry. I've got to set about this. Why I'm doing it, but he didn't even tell them, uh, and, and uh, it, it, it just beggars. Belief, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Sam made it on Insiders this morning, who's an excellent reporter, said that she thinks um, Morrison's got a messiah complex. And in his press conference the other day when he was sticking up for himself, you know, his, his weird, weird line, um, I was steering the ship through the tempest while you were all watching from the shore, saying, you know, how can you judge me for what I've done? Um, of course, this all happens couple months after he went to that Margaret Court megachurch and told us how he shouldn't trust governments. Yeah. He should only trust the Almighty. Little did we know when he spoke of the Almighty, he may well have been referring to himself when he held six ministerial yeah. portfolios. Um, your your point about um, the, the secretive nature of it's well taken, because after all, right, um, first, th this argument of, oh, you know, if a decision needed to be made urgently, if someone got incapacitated or whatever, it meant he could take the wheel. We do have protocols in place for like the urgent swearing in of ministers if something happens. But even putting that to one side, you could probably fairly defensibly make the argument that was made today on Insiders that given the huge, huge wide range of powers that the Biosecurity Act gave Greg Hunt, it would be not a terrible idea to have someone in there as a check and balance to stop him from going megalomaniacal. Now, you could appoint anyone to that role. You don't have to appoint yourself. But to do it secretly... That the secretive nature of it vitiates any public interest argument because you can't say, yes, I was working in the public interest when I was doing this. Also, I haven't told the public. Um, it, it's very difficult to my mind to say you have everyone, in, you know, the Australian people's best interests at heart when you're centralising power in yourself without telling anyone. Now, yeah. with the, the, the health minister appointment, Morrison did tell Greg Hunt, 
They didn't tell us. They didn't tell me. They didn't tell you. They didn't tell everyone. So we had, you know, a, a secret dictator running around. Right, look, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Just moving to the Governor-General, because it's, it's related. Uh, why did the Governor-General accept this? Not only accept the Prime Minister's advice, but kept it secret when every other thing the Governor-General does is recorded in a book, is recorded in various ways, everything except this, uh, except this issue. And he says that he acted on the advice of the Prime Minister. Now, traditionally, Governor-General uh, act on the advice of the Prime Minister. But the Governor-General has the right to seek clarification of everything he's going to do and ask a question about it. Now, the former Governor of Queensland just left Paul de Jersey, who had been the, the, Justice, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Queensland, became Governor-General, a good friend of mine. I got invited to Government House uh, regularly. When they came up to him with government papers, he would, and they got into the habit of making sure they tried to insist what he did. He would not sign something because they put it in front of him. He'd say, Would you please explain to me what this is about? Then he'd ask questions about it. If they couldn't answer the question, he'd say, Well, can you find out the answer and come back and tell me? And he told me once that it was important for the ministry and the public service to know that the, gov the governor was going to ask a question. He wasn't going to sign something. And he said he had no problem. They'd always find out what he wanted. Now, while finally he had to take the advice of the Premier, he had the right to make sure that that advice was good advice and viable advice. And he believed he actually had the right to knock it back if it wasn't. Now, it didn't come to that. Now, now why didn't this bloke ask questions? Well, you're exactly right, because um, the Governor-General, it must be borne in mind, is not a powerless figure. If the Governor General was a powerless figure, um, Malcolm Fraser would be a name lost to history. Yeah. <laughs> Gough Whitlam would have been Prime Minister for much longer. Um, one hopes. Now, it's it's bizarre and secretive. Like the, the Governor General can make the claim, oh, he was just innocently following the orders of Scott Morrison, which again, we dispute because the Governor General does have a little degree of autonomy. But even if he was just following the orders of Morrison to ratify all these things, um, the Governor General's diary records everything else he did on those days, except for the swearing in of Morrison. He deliberately didn't put those in the, the Governor-General diary, Governor-General archives, Governor-General records of all the things he'd done. So he's definitely complicit in the cover-up. Um, there's no other way to put it. Um, and also discourteous. Again, if I was the Governor-General, I've just switched from being the Prime Minister to the Governor-General, and I had sworn in half a dozen blokes as ministers, and then the, the Prime Minister arrives and says he wants to be the minister, I would have felt out of courtesy that I should ring, say, Josh Frydenberg and say, Josh, the Prime Minister wishes to become the, 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 the sort of behind-the-scenes traitor, whatever you had this anonymous title. Can I ask whether you, as a person I've sworn in, can I ask if you're in favour of that? If you're, Because I've sworn you into this job and I'm about to take some of your powers away from you, it would have occurred to me that I should have, having sworn these blokes in, and my signatures on the document that swore them in, I'll ring these blokes and say, are you happy about that? Now, that would have been plain, common courtesy, wouldn't it? So where, where did that so. go? You'd think so, and not only that, but he didn't update the, um, the Government Gazette either, the Government Gazette, which announces when ministers are sworn in. That was kept secret too. So I think... Um, with respect to His Excellency Governor Hurley, I, I think, and I think you might be, uh, you might be in agreement here. 
I think uh, the old Avril and Young James uh, official position may be that he ought to resign. Uh, well, I think he's got to resign. Look, I, I feel right at the beginning, and that the Solicitor General on Monday is to make a determination as to whether this was all legal or to give the current Prime Minister advice on whether or not this was all uh, you know, legal. Now, irrespective of, of what happens with that, I think Hurley, if he's got any basic decency as a person, will leave. I mean, he has committed, in, in my view, a, an undercover political crime that a governor general is supposed to be above. And, and I think, and I think he, 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 he won't get the invitation to go anywhere. He'll be sitting in, in the lodge with nobody wanting him there because his arrival at any function will be embarrassment for people who come up. So I think he's got to go. Now, the issue is, um, uh, I, I, I don't know whether there's a protocol for uh, sacking Governor-General, uh, you might recall that uh, when Peter Hollingworth, the Archbishop, was, governor, uh, was accused of various cover-ups of, uh, of uh, child abuse, uh, I know I was present in the Parliament when it happened, John Howard went to him and asked him for his resignation and he refused. And John Howard could do nothing about that. Now, Peter Hollingworth then let a month or so go by and said, well, look, I'm really in an untenable position, I will go. And he did. But the fact is, he said to John Howard, you can't sack me, uh, you know, and that's, uh, you know, we, we've got a, 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 a similar situation, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it's it's bizarre, right? Like the, the Governor General of this country is, to my mind, as you've said, in an untenable position. And he, he makes the argument, you know, he was just following orders, etc., um, you don't want to politicise the office of the Governor General, rah, rah, rah. But he but did to, Yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. Because to my mind, to uh, to refrain from acting, to refrain from being a check and balance is itself a political decision. Everything the Governor General does is political. To act is political because it has political consequences. To not act is also political because it too has political consequences. You can't just, you know, put your hands up and try to wash them of liability by saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm doing the apolitical thing and standing by because the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And if you're accepting that happening under your watch, um, because the governor general is, you know, to some degree, a night watchman, um, you have to face the music, I think. Well, now, we're now about to have some interesting things happen now. There are people racing all over Twitter and Facebook at the moment saying, let's make Australia Republic in a hurry and let's fix this business and what powers the president's got. And, well, that's not going to happen in a hurry because the Uluru referendum's got to go through first and then there'd have to be another referendum about, about the Republic. And so I think the Republic is a few years away. In the meantime, we've got to appoint a new government. This place's got to go, even if we've all got to march on Parliament, the government house, this place's got to go now. Albo then has the job of picking a new Prime Minister now. Now, we can't blame Albo for anything that's happened in the past, but we cannot have another situation where the Governor-General is chosen by the Prime Minister deciding who he wants and he rings up the Queen and they have a chat and say that's fine and therefore the bloke is the Governor-General. We cannot have that happening and this has got nothing to do with trusting Albo. A precedent has to be set. And, and, and I believe that Albo should decide by, by having get a resolution through Parliament, which I think everybody would pretty well agree with, to say, uh, with the appointment of this 
Governor General coming up. The House and the Senate will have a joint meeting and we need a two-thirds or three-quarters majority of both houses sitting together for who we approve and two names must be put forward so the House and the have, have a, a choice and, and we sit there till one of them gets uh, uh, 75%. In, in that way, at least, Parliament will have said, and there's a record in Parliament in Hansard, this is the Governor-General. We can't have this situation where the Prime Minister and the Queen have a little chat and then you and I have to accept this. We've got to get away also from these traditions that you've got to have a general or a, a judge or someone or other to do it, uh, uh, you know, or that you've got to have somebody who's just going to be a, a yes person. But we can't, we've got to have some sort of a vote while we're waiting for a republic, which may or may not happen. We've got to have some sort of legitimate parliamentary vote to say this guy or woman is the prime minister. Am I right or wrong? No, I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I mean, obviously, the thing to remember with um, Republic talk around here is that hopefully under our preferred Republic model, you and I, a president in a theoretical Australian Republic would fulfil a similar role to the Governor General today. The president wouldn't be some like super powerful American style um, actor. And I think going back to Morrison, really, that's what his power grab sort of said about him. He saw himself as an American-style president. Now, it's important to note that in a future republic, a hopeful future republic, a president doesn't have to have those American-style or Morrison-style powers. And with a bit of, if done properly, constitutionally, you could have, um, again, a similar night watchman-style figure. And I, I, do, I do think judges are probably best placed, retired judges are probably best placed for this such role. Um, because yeah, it, it's it, it's just the, the whole thing's still insane to me. But I do agree that the governor general ought to be chosen more democratically, because otherwise you do risk appointing a yes man. And I mean, after the the day after one of the appointments, um, the very day after, like twelve million dollars was given from the government to a charity the governor general sponsors. It just seems off. No, well, it's not off. Obviously, there was some sort of a deal that came. I mean, I mean the whole thing. Uh... You know, the whole thing stinks. I mean, let's be quite clear. I think the Governor General can sue me if he wants to, but the, the whole thing stinks. And so I, I think this is probably a good thing in that we now start as a nation to think about the Constitution. I happen to believe that when we become a republic, we shouldn't have a person called the President. I can't see why we can't hold the current title Governor General. Yeah. That would make people feel that, that, that they, they associate the word president with Donald Trump. Exactly. We should have, and so you have state governors who at the moment get appointed by the Queen and the Governor-General appointed. We'd have a situation in a, in a republic where the Governor-General, uh, who's elected by some democratic means, would be the one who approves state governors, only into the sense that if Queensland appoints a governor, they pass a resolution in the Palmer Senate off to the government and the governor general has it done legally. He looks at the legal precedents in Queensland and says this, this person's been appointed illegally. He then signs. He doesn't sort of say that's not acceptable to me, only if they've broken the state constitution. So you have a situation where state governors get approved by the governor general. The Queen's got nothing to do with it. And that would be a good system in which uh, to have, and I think the words governor general would be more acceptable 
to the average Australian than the word president, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'm inclined to agree because I think one of the biggest fear campaigns the anti-republic movement can run is, oh, you know, why would you move from the, the safe, what you know, of the English system to ooh, the boogeyman of America? But it's very important to emphasise that an Australian constitutional republic with a president or a governor general or whatever you want to call your head of state does not have to have the powers of the American head of state. Um, we yeah. don't have to follow the American model at all. Like, look at uh, Ireland. Powers can be codified in the Constitution uh, or in an instrument of the Constitution. Okay, yeah. we would go, these are the powers, and there can be an act of parliament about that or whatever one's done, but it needs. So, this whole thing may be a healthy, uh, you know, a bit of work. But I, I believe that what we're going to happen in the coming week is that uh, Hurley will have no option but to resign. And I think if he doesn't resign, there'll be a hue and cry such as a, has never been heard. And I think the right thing for Morrison to do is to retire as the member for uh, cookies in disgrace and go off and do something else in his life. And uh, I wish him well in something else in his life, but he better get off the scene. And, you know, and uh, so I hope that this will happen this week. Now, while we appoint a Governor General, I think uh, Albo will appoint the Chief Justice of Australia to sign anything that has to be signed why would they have some sort of election? I'm right. I know he can appoint the Chief Justice. Um, that, uh, I'll just throw my hands up and say I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not sure how a transition... But in the state of Queensland, which is not noted for oh. democratic principles, in the state of Queensland, when the governor is away or sick or whatever, oh, okay. oh. The, 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 the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Queensland is automatically the, the governor, temp act, oh, okay. acting governor. Right, cool. I mean, um, it, one thing you talked about there, Morrison is the member for Cook too. The the day after this news story broke, Morrison was asked about it. He went on 2GB or Sky News or something. And he said, oh, I'm not particularly following it. I don't do day-to-day -day politics anymore. And I mean, what an absolute middle finger to the voters of Cook who have elected him as their member. And he, it's just come out. He was this again, secret dictator running pretty much the entire country from the shadows. And then now he's still a backbencher, still a member for, you know, 150,000 people or however many there are in the constituency. And he's just said to all of them, oh, I don't care about politics anymore. An, an open admission that he's collecting $200,000 a year for not doing his job. Just, just a sicko. I'm starting to worry about his mental processes, but that's that's the way. Well, we better time marching on. There's a couple of other things we ought to we ought to talk about. Well, that was a we've been talking about a vital point in Australia's constitutional history today, and that's important. But let's go to good guys and bad guys of the week. Uh, uh, my, my good guy of the week is, is a woman, uh, Liz Cheney, who uh, has been beaten in a primary for the House of Representatives member for Wyoming in the U.S. Congress. She's been beaten by a Trump person. Now, as we know, Liz Cheney is the key figure in the investigation by the House of, 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 uh, in America over Donald Trump and the January raid on the Congress and whatever. And, and she's played a key role in that. And Trump decided he was going to get rid of her. And he got it quite convincingly. He lost by 20 points. And uh, and uh, I, my, my feeling is that I think uh, she... Was a very, it's a very brave Republican 
who stands up against Donald Trump to start off with, so she's very much in a minority because they think he's got the Republicans in America. But I think she's right, she's lost. I don't believe her political career is over. I've been firing off messages everywhere saying, when, when the primaries start for the next presidential election, she should run for president. Uh, there's been plenty of precedent for a House of Representatives person uh, to run. She should run for president. There'd be plenty of people who'd pack her money. And she should try and stop Trump from getting the Republican nomination. And, and uh, now that may be an impossible task, but I think she will let Trump know that she is still around. I hope she does that. What's your view on what Cheney's position? I mean, I've, um, I've always... I'm always a bit reticent to like lionize these so-called moderate Republicans because like they still support, you know, stripping the vote from black Americans and disproportionate over policing of um and she but we're talking about the Republican nomination. I believe I hope the Democrats come up with a candidate who's gonna beat whatever Republican chosen. But I just think it would be poetic justice for her, who she's right wing, no two ways about it. But, but she doesn't storm Congress and burn buildings down, and, you know, and, and what have you. And, and I think that uh, uh, she should knock him off and, and, and then uh, let's hope the Democrats can come up with a candidate that I don't think is Joe Biden. I think Joe's starting to look a bit rickety. I think we uh, need to go. But I, anyway, I thought she showed a bit of guts in Trump. Mm. Who, who's your good guy of the week? Um. I will just say it's it's a sad, sad indictment of the state of that country where doesn't storm Congress and doesn't burn buildings down is seen as like a benchmark you have to clear <laughs> to be um, morally right in the Republican nomination. Uh, my good guy of the week is um, China. I saw an article in the Sydney Morning Herald this week. It was actually shared by Malcolm Turnbull on Twitter talking about China's huge, huge investments in green energy. Um, basically, China is... Um, so the US last year was bigging up their green energy capacity with the potential to issue 30 um, gigawatts or 30 million gigawatts. I forget um, the exact measure. Um, I, I'm not a science man, but 30 something gigawatts um, of green energy in the year 2021. Essentially, the figures have come out from China and they were putting out six times what the US was putting out uh, in green energy. They're leading the world in hydrogen investment, wind investment, solar investment, hydro investment. Um, last year, President Xi announced that they were going to put a put the stopper on like up to 70% of their offshore coal projects. Um, they're leading the world in manufacturing green energy. So um, just quietly, obviously, a lot of the talk about China in the news has been Taiwan-related, South China Sea-related, et cetera. And what has been forgotten in that is how quietly, quietly, uh, China is turning themselves into a huge green energy superpower. And it's awesome for the world that they're doing that. And I hope more countries follow their lead. Well, now, well, that's a very interesting point. And let's hope, uh, let's hope uh, that that happens. At the moment, they've said they're not going to cooperate with the United States and climate things over Taiwan. But it seems to me that they're probably going to go and make a point that they're, they're way the hell ahead of the United States in green energy anyway. So why, why even bother to talk to them? And yeah, no, that's right. Actually, it can be the bad guys. I've got to say that the New South Wales Parliament, uh, this is your parliament, you live in that wicked state of New South Wales, James, is not in good shape. And Perrottet, everything that Perrottet and his team seem to touch 
turns bad, ministers are resigning, you know, uh, uh, somebody is being caught out for something almost every day. And it seems to me that the New South Wales Parliament is almost dysfunctional. Now, am I, am I going overboard? But it seems to me that they produce a disaster every day. Yeah, it's, it's insane. Between uh, my local member for Penrith, Stuart Ayres, who's been caught up in the John Barillaro business, um, the latest Barillaro thing is apparently he got himself involved with a property development slash organised crime family. It's the latest news story that's been put out there. Um, Perrottet has been regularly fumbling the bag. Um, the New South Wales trains, Sydney trains rather, as part of their industrial action against the um, transport minister, have uh, for one week now and for two more weeks been keeping all the gates open at train stations. So that's been a big plus. And, um, you know, I stand in solidarity with striking Sydney trains workers. Um, and I, you know, I'm happy for them to continue keeping the gates open and not enforcing fines. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the state of New South Wales politics heading into the May 2023 elections, very, um, very fraught. Um, okay, my my bad guy of the week is um, and this is a, a bit of a personal thing to me, but it's um the University of Sydney's administration. Now, um, University of Sydney staff, as part of enterprise bargaining, have been on off doing industrial action for like uh, maybe three, four months now, um, because of actions by the administration that have been really, really oppressive to teaching staff. Uh, first and foremost, for casual staff. Casual staff are getting woefully underpaid for the hours they do. I think they're given, like, from what I remember, 30 hours of teaching pay and 30 hours of, like, preparatory and marking pay um, every, every semester. Um, and when you work it out, that 30 hours of, like, outside of class time means if you boil it down to the finities, they've got, like, you know, 10 minutes paid to be marking uh, 2,000 word essays, like 10 minutes for every 2,000 word essay. And obviously they take a lot more time than 10 minutes to mark every 2,000 word essay. So what you've got is casual tutors being paid nothing for the bulk of their marking and lesson prep work. You've got the academics um, who are being pushed, pushed, pushed to take on immense class and teaching loads uh, and getting pushed away from doing their research because that's what they go into academia for, research. Now, it's important that the academics teach, don't get me wrong, but what bolsters a uni's um, sort of credentials is the quality of academic research that uni puts out, because that's what makes the uni prestigious on the world stage and stuff. So the administrators on one hand are pushing the academics really, really hard to say, no, no, don't waste your time on that silly research, spend your time with your students, which we're not gonna pay you for, by the way. Um, but the upshot of that is it makes the quality of the student's degree look worse because it means the piece of paper they're getting at the end of the degree doesn't come from as, you know, internationally renowned institution. Um, so the, the use of staff have been striking against the administrators. The administrators uh, still seem pretty reluctant to come to the table. I think, um, I think you'll find that, James, that this is happening in universities around Australia yeah. a massive drop in income with international students yeah. in the 90s, they're cutting, they're cutting staff everywhere. I'm an adjunct professor at UQ and staff are disappearing. Simply, they're just not being replaced when they go because they're running out of money. And so we do have a situation where someone, and I presume uh, 
uh, this is elbow that you can have a good look at it, that the whole way in which we run the universities in Australia is now being looked at. I agree with you that research has got to be, uh, you know, a, 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 a university that does not do research is not that university is simply a glorified high school and, and, and we go from there. Just before we wind up, James, I think we passed our half an hour, but I just want to say next week, I want to talk about elbows. Uh, visit up to the Torres Strait Islands about, about Uluru referendum. I think there's a few ramifications that's important. And I'm glad he went, and but there's some important issues that arise there. And I'm sure that this week too, we'll be talking about, next week we'll be talking about, do we have a governor general? Do we have a member for Cook? And it'll, it'll all be a, a good thing, but it's been good to chat to you again today. And I, I look forward to a, another excursion next week, James. Yep, thanks for listening, everyone. I think you might be right that um, there are some hot seats in Parliament right now, um, ones to watch. So it'll be an exciting week, as it always is. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and see you next week. Yeah, bye for now. Ciao.